Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, I'm so excited. We're talking to Michael Lee, basketball and sports and society writer for the Washington Post. Uh, we're going to be speaking about the Philadelphia 76ers and where in the human heck they are going, if anywhere other than a ditch. Also, I've got some choice words about athletes and the fight for reproductive rights, abortion rights, and all the rest of it. I've got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards related to Brittany Griner, a still kidnapped hostage in Russia, which we're going to discuss. And also, just one last point is I want to dedicate this entire show to the memory of Shireen Abu Akleh, who uh, was killed by an Israeli sniper. Uh, she was the great Al Jazeera reporter whose funeral was then effectively raided by Israeli troops. Um, an, an utter tragedy and an abomination. And so this show is dedicated to Shireen Abu Akleh. But without further ado, let's talk to the man himself, Mike Lee. Michael Lee, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, doing well. Excellent. We can finally have a proper conversation. How's everything at the Washington Post? Everything's good, man. We're working on a, I'm working on a pretty big project now. So I'm, I'm going to be, uh, what do you call it, zero dark 30 or something. I'm going to be laying low for a little bit. Can, can you tell us what the project is or is that uh, on a need-to-know basis? Yeah, it's, it's some James Bond type stuff. Ah. Uh. <laughs> well, We'll, we'll we'll come we'll come out with a uh, with something you're like oh so that's what he's been doing okay okay James Bond or uh, Barry Bonds uh I go with James because I'm not using any performance enhancing drugs oh very good very good well <laughs> I wanted to talk to you because um I mean not to do a full excavation of what's happening in the NBA but I really just wanted to talk to you about the 76ers because I find their current state very interesting from the from the yeah. perspective of just the modern NBA and what you do and how you build a championship franchise. Um, yeah. So I guess I just start out. I, I want to ask you, um, the 76ers season's over, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, went out in, I think, kind of the, the meekest six games. Like, I've never seen a six-game series that didn't feel like a six-game series quite like that against the Heat. And so going forward, going into next year, do you see this as a team that should consider themselves contenders or do you blow up the franchise? Um, I definitely don't see them as contenders. Um, I see them as a team with uh, MVP caliber player who's having his prime years wasted by an organization that doesn't really value building a team hmm. um you know for a while you know they were very patient with the process and that they were willing to lose games and tank away seasons in the effort to get talent to get you know to draft their own talent but then they got too eager to win right away but they didn't they didn't go about doing it the right way they went about trying to get the biggest names possible even if the fit wasn't right and if you look at every decision they've made since Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid appeared to be, you know, all-star caliber players, franchise building blocks, everything they've done has just been a blunder without looking at how to build a team. Um, you know, Jimmy Butler has been great since he got to Miami and he's led them to the conference finals two out of three years he's been there. 
And they probably messed up by not re-signing him. But the first mistake they made was that they just went star chasing a little too soon and not trying to build things organically. You look at the fun teams around the league that are like from Memphis to New Orleans and all these groups that just have these young, this young collection of talent that you can see kind of growing together and going through these ups and downs together. The Sixers, you know, they, they they got too eager to just go after big names. So when I just say big names, I don't mean chasing stars. I mean, chasing a star coach, you know, going up to Doc Rivers because he has a big name, going up to Daryl Morey because he has a big name, you know, and just doing all these things that can get you to help you win, you know, a PR campaign in the off season, but don't necessarily yield the results that you want long-term. Um, and they've made so many mistakes and it all comes down to the ownership. Um, yeah. You know, Josh Harris and uh, Dave Blitzer, they've done a good job in terms of making the team seem relevant, but they've done a bad job in trying to build something. And uh, and they and you can just look at all the mistakes they've made, and you can just look around and see trading Michael Mikael Bridges, a, a Villanova kid from from the Philadelphia area, who would be a perfect fit. And they could have had him on the cheap for a couple of years, and he would have been a great contributor. But they didn't they didn't want him. Um, going after the flash of faults when you know they could have. I mean, I, and a lot of people say that that was the pick at the time, and I understand that. But the but the team that wound up with the best player in that draft the Boston Celtics knew all along that Jason Tatum was the guy. Mm-hmm. They could have had Jason Tatum too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I think that there've been a lot of other mistakes they've made too, to appease Ben Simmons, to make him feel comfortable with the fact that he wasn't trying to develop his game and trying to become better. Um, you know, he, he took criticism as a reason to, to shrink as opposed to a reason to, to try to improve. And that hurt the organization, but also the fact that, he wasn't comfortable with Fultz around and having another ball handler around, take the ball out of his hands. They traded him without really letting him develop. He wasn't comfortable with Jimmy Butler having the ball in crunch time and sort of just turning him into, you know, into somebody standing in the dunker position who doesn't do anything but just set screens and, and, and play off the ball. Wasn't comfortable with that, so they let Jimmy Butler go. Um, you know, so they've done all these moves. They've tried to do everything they can to appease him. And then eventually when things got really hard for him, he just quit on the whole franchise and now they're just stuck. They're in a bad, they're in a bad way. And I know that was a long answer, but no, there's just no. been so many blunders along the way. But I think the main one is, is that they tried to rush the process and now they got to flush it. Yeah. So, but what do you do in this case though? Because you, they're not contenders. I completely agree with you about that. But blowing up the franchise at a at this point would obviously have financial repercussions. It would prove very demoralizing for the fan base. Uh, you get the feeling that the the ownership structure has got way too much hubris to admit their mistakes and do something like that. Daryl Morey said he's bringing back Doc Rivers. So, I mean, so, so and James, yeah, and James, which is wild to me, and we're going to get to that. But what do you do? Then, I mean, is this a team that you think is just going to be settling for mediocrity until Joel Embiid inevitably asks to be traded? Yes. Oh, my. Joel Embiid will inevitably ask to be traded (laughs) when he looks around and and sees that he's not winning MVP awards. He's not getting the the championship, um, you know, chase that that he wants. 
and he realized that this organization just isn't building it right. I mean, you can just, I mean, there's so, there's so many blunders just out there playing basketball right now for elite teams. And, uh, and they're, they're, they can't get out of the second round. Um, it's really embarrassing. Um, I mean, it's not as embarrassing as the, the process, which I was totally against. I thought it was a terrible way to go about trying to build something. And I think also, and, and, and what it did too, is that when you do things that way, when you try to rig the system and you try to, you know, get things like in that, in that manner, by, by tanking and doing extreme levels of tanking, you set a culture that just never understands what it takes to win. And I don't think they understand what it takes to win. They, they know what sounds good and, and what can that, that, you know, what they can sell to the fans to make it seem like they're ready to win, but they're not doing the things organically to try to, you know, build a winner. So I, I just feel like, I don't know how you blow it up, but I think you just got to try to ride out some of these contracts that you've had. You overpaid Tobias Harris, um, mainly because you've, you missed out on Jimmy or you let Jimmy walk and you missed out on Mikael Bridges. You had those guys, you don't have to overpay for Tobias Harris. Um, and then I think you got to really let James walk whenever he comes up. You know, you don't have to extend him. And if he wants to opt in, so be it. But I try to convince him to opt out and see what else he can get out there and maybe find another team that will be close to a championship because he ain't winning one in Philly. Um, and if you do that, then I just think you just try to build. But I just think overall, by 2024, we're going to be seeing Joel Embiid uh, has requested a trade from Philadelphia 76ers. <laughs> what can well, they get for him? Yeah. And about James Harden, I mean, for people who are casual fans would be shocked, I think, to Google James Harden age and see that he's still only 32 years old. I mean, he's 32. And he's, of course, a shadow of himself, a shadow of the person they were saying was a top three all-time shooting guard just a couple of years ago. I mean, people were putting him ahead of Dwayne Wade on the all-time list, just looking at Kobe and Michael. I mean, and now he's a shadow of himself. How do, how do you comprehend the current state of Harden? Why? Well, I always look at it like this. this person. A lot of heavy lifting and a lot of hard living caught mm-hmm. up to him. And 32, his 32 is not the same as like LeBron 32. Mm-hmm. His 32 is like an Iverson 32. Mm. Like... Um, you know, it, it happens, you know, and, and it, it just comes from a time where you just, there's too much on you. You're asked to do too much and you also enjoy the life. You enjoy what, what the game gives you off the court and he enjoys it probably better than anybody else, you know? And, uh, you know, every time you see him, you know, hanging out with the rappers in the studio and, you know, it's, it's cool, right? It's a great thing to say, I'm, I, I hang out with a little baby. Like that's my guy, you know? Um, but <laughs> that's not really what your priority should be right now, you know? And not, not to say you shouldn't have fun, you shouldn't have a good time, but I, I just feel like it's clear that he hasn't done enough. And he, and he also just finds a way of not showing up when a team really needs him. And I've never seen a star who was as dominant in the regular season as him who just disappears in the playoffs. And that's been his reputation going back to even OKC, I look back at that 2012 finals now in, in such a different way when they lost to the Heat. Um, at the time, you know, people were blaming Russell Westbrook because he was kind of erratic and all over the place with his turnovers. But really, 
they just needed James Harden to be the player he had been all season. And he was nothing close to it. And they mm-hmm. lost in five. Um, everybody else pretty much played the way they played all year. James was the only guy who didn't show up at all. And then when you look at his time in Houston, he puts up these ridiculous 60-point triple-doubles, 50-point triple-doubles, 40-point triple-doubles, just amasses all these amazing statistics. But when it gets time to, like, perform in the playoffs, elimination games, he just looks for the nearest hiding place. Mm -hmm. And that's just – I don't understand why that's the case. I don't know why he decides to turn into a cockroach and the lights turn on. Mm. But that's been with him his whole career. And now um, Philly's stuck with that. Because even when he was in Houston, even when he was James Harden, you know, the beard, you know, truly elite shooting guard, once the, once the postseason came around, you know, he turned into, I guess uh, the joke is he, he became Brick Ross, you know. <laughs> you know he couldn't hit a shot. Okay. Or wouldn't take a shot, which is worse. See, even the most casual of NBA fans uh, look, you know, people who are, are not experts in any way, shape, or form. Obviously, they're not people who do this for a living. They, they can say, wow, if you sign James Harden to some kind of supermax, he's going to be making $61 million at age 37. He's not playing it right now at any sort of level like that at age 32. Of course, it would be franchise harikari to give james harden that kind of money and yet it looks like they're leaning towards doing that how how do you even explain that well maury has an obsession he's had the same obsession since he was in houston and that's to win a championship with james harden you know when you think about maury ball you think about his whole philosophy um he was the first superstar embodiment of, of how he wanted to play. You know, Shane Battier was not a star, but he sort of embodied that the other, the other aspect of it from a defense, defense perspective. And James did it representative from an offensive, offensive perspective. But his obsession is to win a title with James Harden. And because he tried every year to come up with a totally different team, you know, he revamped the roster over and over again. A lot of it is because James couldn't get along with different guys, but a lot of it also is because Maury was quick to say, this isn't working. We're going to try another, we're going to try another way. Um, and he's obsessed with winning a title with James. He thinks he can win a title with James, but the danger in that, in, you know, being just sort of just narrow-minded and a blind, blind, just, just, you know, having those blinders on for, for James is that it's not like, he's say playing at a Steph Curry level and you pay him now because you, you know what he's giving you right now. And maybe by the end of the year, end of his career, you know, that, that deal might not look as good, but right now you, you have a shot to win. You got to go for it. Or right now you have no shot to win with James Harden. So you, it's not worth going for it because there's not going to be a payoff for it. Like the same way with Kevin Durant, like Brooklyn gave him his, his max extension because right now he's still one of the top five five players in the game um some people say he's the best still but he's still that dude that you can ride and say he can lead us right now james wasn't even the second best player on his team in the playoffs so you can't justify latching jail joel and beads prime to a guy who's already clearly finished at, mm-hmm. at playing at, at that level not not finished as a basketball player he's still a serviceable player still a good player but not a guy that's going to be the highest paid player in NBA history. He's not. 
a top five player, not a top 10 player, not a top 20 player, I don't believe right now, because everything that he didn't do right has caught up with him right now. Mm. Has Let's talk about Doc Rivers real quick. Has I mean, One of the things that was really surprising for me was just the absolute immediate statement from Daryl Morey that Doc Rivers would be back next season. Not, not, a, not a wait and see, not, not, no, no room for even contemplation. Just absolutely, Doc Rivers has earned being back with this team next year. Has, has Doc Rivers earned uh, that level of belief given how this season went? Let me tell you a little secret. Owners do not like playing, paying coaches money to not coach. They definitely don't want to pay coaches who have three years left on their contract to not coach. Mm-hmm. Doc Rivers' security comes from the fact that he signed a five-year deal and he's only completed year two. If it was year three or year four, they just finished, maybe there's a chance they're willing to pay. But they're not trying to pay a coach with the money they're paying Doc Rivers for three years to not work when the coach is not going to solve the problem in Philadelphia. So let me just get that, say that first. And also, um, I think that last year he blew it. They had, they were the number one seed. They had an opportunity um, to win their last two home games in the playoffs. And they would have, you know, been able to advance to the conference finals. They didn't do it. They lost to a Hawks team that really overachieved. And they really underachieved, and a lot of that has to fall on Doc Rivers. This year, they had no shot at winning the title once Joel Embiid got hurt. You know, once once the misfortune of another injury hit him, um, that ended any chances of them um, beating the Miami Heat. I think a healthy Joel Embiid, they have a shot at beating the Miami Heat. I mean, um, he changes everything for 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 them. I mean, he's an MVP caliber player. He definitely would have been able to push this to at least seven at the least. And they probably could have beat the heat um, if he's healthy, but he wasn't healthy. And that's really the unfortunate thing about Joel Embiid's whole postseason career is that there's always something. And it's not like he's just somebody who doesn't take care of himself. He just has the flukiest of fluky injuries. I mean, Pascal Siakam just sweeps his arm across his face and uh, trying to drive to a basket and breaks his face. Like, like, how, how, like you can't blame that on anything. You can't say that he doesn't, you know, it's not a hamstring. It's not, you know, anything other than just bad luck. And the bad luck stick just keeps hitting you in the head. So mm-hmm. if that happens, it gives Doc Rivers an excuse. But and, and I think that that's something that you have to say fairly. This year was not on him. But last year when he had, like, it was clear that Ben Simmons did not want to be on the floor in the fourth quarter of a game. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you got to just make a bold decision and be like, you know what? We got to win this game. And, you know, I, I go back to, you know, back in Houston when they wound up coming back from a 3-1 deficit against Doc Rivers' Clippers team. Now, game five, they wrote it out with um, Corey Brewer and Josh Smith mm-hmm. in the fourth quarter. And James Harden sat there on the bench in the critical, decisive game uh, you know, an, an elimination game. They just said, James, you ain't got it. Have a seat. And they wrote it out with two guys who were going to give it, you the maximum effort. Sometimes Doc is so loyal to his guys that he doesn't see what needs to be done. And in last year, Ben Simmons didn't want to be there. He didn't want to perform in the fourth quarter. Then bench him and advance. 
and his ego would get over it if they get to the conference finals and he performs well better in that that round. But if he's already surrendering in the second round, you owe it to your team to put the guys out there who want to compete. And Ben didn't want to compete last year. Mm. Now, uh, the player on the 76ers that, and of course, I'm going to tie the Wizards into this question, so uh, just get ready. <laughs> but the, the player on the 76ers that I am besotted with, as many of us are, is uh, Tyrese Maxey. Like someone Absolutely. who you think, okay, maybe the 76ers, you know, if they're smart enough to not re-sign Harden, <laughs> if they're... You know, if they if they can if Maxi can take a leap, maybe they don't have to live in that horrible netherworld between rebuilding and being a contender. Like if Maxi has that kind of ceiling, um, I got in a big debate uh, with a buddy of mine, and I, I'm just trying to get you to weigh in on this, Mike. Where I said that um, if the Wizards could have gone Bradley Beal for Tyrese Maxi, and you throw in Tobias Harris. The Wizards should have done it because I think Maxi's ceiling could actually be higher than Bradley Beal going forward. Am I completely out to lunch on that, or um, or, or do you think <laughs> Maxi could be that special? And to give you know, we're down on Beal in DC these days because we're all scared about him getting this super max and what yeah. that will do to the team. So there's a there is an interesting anti-Beal sentiment in town. But um but Beal is also, you know, to give him his his credit, you know, this is a thir- was a 30 point a game guy. This is you know, an all NBA player just a year ago and I'm here saying Tyrese Maxey has a higher ceiling. Am, am I out to lunch? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. But you've been out to lunch before. It's no big deal. It's fine. We 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 all say things that are crazy and and that uh you know, but I, I think you're doing a disservice to Bill. I think that um, I had a conversation with somebody the other day about just what kind of talent he is. And, um, you know, because I know that Joel and B really wanted Bill before they traded for Harden. He really wanted Bradley Bill. And um, and he's such a – he's really a big-time performer in the playoffs. Yes. Uh, he's a guy whose numbers, you know, usually get better in the postseason. At least they did in his early days in Washington. Um you know when they when they were when he's playing with John Wall, mm-hmm. and I just feel like if he's with a guy like Embiid and his his he's all of a sudden gonna look much much better because the floor is gonna open up in the way it never did in Washington. But um, but I I think that Maxie's good and I, I really like him a lot and he has a great spirit about himself. He's just he's positive. He's he he likes to have fun and you can just see the joy out there when he's out there on the court. And those type of guys can be infectious and I think that. He's a, he's a, he elevates the spirits of, of, of whatever locker room he's in. And so I, I think he's a great player, and I would love to have him on my team because he's, he's generally going to compete and play hard. Um, you know, he just needs to be around guys who kind of carry that same, you know, attitude. But I do think that Bradley Bill um, has just been in a bad situation. And I think that maybe the fact that he's been with such a bad organization for the last couple of years that we forget – how good he could be if he actually was in a better situation. Um, the Wizards have not done him any favors over the last couple of years. I think that the biggest mistake they made was going all in on making him the leader of the franchise, but not doing enough to make the team good enough. <laughs> Cause like he can lead them to 37 wins or whatever. <laughs> and that's not fun. Uh, but he's not leading them to the promised land. And I think that was, that was the error that they made. And Brad's a great player, but he's not a number one of a, on a on a contending team. 
Um, I don't think Tyrese Maxey is either. Uh, but if he is what who you would get in a return for a trade, I say I'd do it because you're not going to replace Brad with a Brad-type player. You're going to replace Brad with players, you know, who can help you build towards something. Like, you look at the New Orleans Pelicans now. Is um, Brandon Ingram as good as Anthony Davis was at his prime? No. But if you get him and a couple of other guys, you know, along – and then you can, you know, use those other pieces to get your other pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, then you're then you're building something, and I think that's what the Wizards have to do is that they got to think about trying to build something, building a team, and not just trying to build a shrine to one player. So you are not in the camp of saying let's supermax Bradley Beal. I I, I think it's an inevitable that it's going to happen, but I think it's a huge mistake unless you right. already have a trade you know, you know, set in motion because you're not going anywhere with him as your best player. I mean, when I say any, you're not going, you might make it to the playoffs. You might make it to the playing game a couple of times. You're not winning a championship with him as your best player. And that's not a slight on him. And there's only four or five guys, maybe six guys in the league that you can say, he's your best player. You got a, you got a shot. Um, he's still a great player, but committing that kind of money to a guy who has already proven that you're sealing with him is a first round exit is that's, that's a malpractice. That's organizational malpractice. You're, you're setting your team up you're in your franchise up for mediocrity and you can't sell mediocrity to fans. And you definitely can't sell that to a lukewarm fan base to begin with. Cause it's not like wizard fans just love Bradley Bill so much that they can't let him go. I mean, I think that you, you were right in that. I don't think that there's this big love fest for Brad, you know, because everybody's seen how far he can take the team. Um, it's not like he's a two-time MVP like a Jokic is in Denver. You know, he's just a good player who needs a lot of good players around him to really, you know, be his, be you know reach his ceiling. But if he's your best player and you don't surround him with other quality players, then you're just hamstringing yourself to just being an average at best team. Okay, on a scale of one to ten. The Wizards are a team that desperately needs a point guard. That's the biggest hole on the roster. On a scale of one to ten, ten being, holy crap, this could actually happen. One being, Dave, you're kidding yourself. What are the chances they uh, kick the tires on John Wall? I think it's a two. Okay. Uh, I, I I don't see a reunion being um, in the best interest for the Wizards or for John Wall. Um, I think some relationships should be left where they were um you know i i think that john is under under one of the more underrated players of his era yes um, I, I don't think he got the appreciation that he truly deserved outside of washington i think the love that the that wizards fans had for him was justified because he actually lived up to what he was asked to do before injuries you know knocked him off course and then through his own self-inflicted you know kind of things with you know his nightlife and, and things of that nature but i i think that I looked at it I looked at it during the season when I was really struggling with how he was not playing at all in Houston. This guy, I believe, is seventh all time in assists per game. Mm. Average. Oh. Top think about it. A guy top ten all time in assists per game couldn't play for the Houston Rockets last year. And and they, and, and I think that he, I, I just I would love to see him on the court, but I think that being in DC he's not ready to lead an organization 
he he he's not at that stage in his career where he can take any team anywhere. Um, just everything, injuries, all the stuff, it catches up with you at a certain age. And now he's over 30 on the wrong side of 30. So bringing him back to Washington is that you would just try to kind of rekindle some of the magic, but there wasn't enough magic when he left, you know. Um, it reminds me of, uh, I remember Iverson went back to the Sixers. Oh, yeah. Yep. You you remember that? Most people don't. Absolutely. Because it's not something anybody he, wants to remember. He famously came out one game without the cornrows when he was in the 76ers uniform, and that was a huge – I wrote a whole article about that, about him returning to the Sixers and not having his rows in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he came back, and it just it – just, there was no magic there. It was just it was just great to see him in a Sixers uniform again, yeah. but the nostalgia, that, that wears off quickly. I think if the Wizards – you know, they, they've already moved on from him and I hate I hate the way it all went down. I hate the way it ended. Um, but it's over. And I think for him, he should be a part of an organization that's closer to winning and where he doesn't have to be the face of it and he doesn't have to be the leader of it. He can just be a really good piece um, who can set guys up, who can, you know, push the ball, push the tempo, and just really be a, be a true point guard. Um, that's what he is. That's what he always wanted to be. Um, and I think if he gets that opportunity, he can shine, but it's not going to happen in Washington because if he comes back here, he's going to fall back into some of the same bad habits and some of the same things that he got too comfortable with in Washington. If he Mm -hmm. goes to another environment where there's a pressure to win and he doesn't have to be the guy, I think he could thrive in that situation. So I, I think it'd be best for the Wizards and for John to just enjoy what they had but try to look forward to what they're going to have in the future. You know, that that's that's an interesting point. I'll take that in. I just want the guy to be happy, and I want to be able to see him. Me up. too. That's all I want. I want to see him play, and I want him to be in a happy place. I think he's more than earned that. And the stuff in Houston, I think, should have been a bigger story and was kind of a, a national scandal from a sports perspective. One of the worst things I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, in, in my time covering sports, I, because it's not like he quit on the team. It was a situation where a team quit on him and then basically held him hostage for a whole year. Um, I, I'd never seen anything like it. And Twitter wasn't exactly the place to really have that discussion, <laughs> but it was really disgusting to me. I, I was embarrassed for him. I was embarrassed um, for the Rockets too. The Rockets. Because they, they, they took an extreme measure to basically sabotage a guy's career, you know, Basketball careers are short, man. Yeah. And you take away a guy's a year of a guy's career over some pettiness. I mean, if you're gonna pay him anyway not to play, then just pay him, just pay him to go away. And people are like, well, yeah, but you you got to get something in return, man. These are not assets, man. These are human beings. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people forget that these are human beings out there playing basketball, and we totally disrespect that. Last mm-hmm. and, and we treated John like a like an asset after all the human pain that he's been through the last three or four years, all of a sudden he had to deal with just being somebody who we can't trade because he makes too much money and we can't really give him an opportunity to play because it would just set a bad precedent, you know, for guys. But if a team quits on you, then they should really say goodbye all the way. Absolutely. I'm glad to hear you say that. Actually, it links to my last question, and um, 
this is kind of an odd one. This could just be me projecting, but you know, we're obviously living, Michael, in some very, uh, very disturbing times in our society. Uh, there's, lightly, a, yeah. uh, there's a lot of unease in the air, in the world. And I don't know, so, some of the, one of the smarter articles I read about Will Smith slapping Chris Rock was asking the question like, what if Will Smith is just all of us at this point? And we're all on this razor edge and maybe, you know, it's, it, was just, it was just an interesting article. Like, is it reflecting something larger in the oxygen that Will would do that? And I'm looking at these NBA playoffs, the stuff with Chris Paul's family, some of the the personal trash talking that's going on in some of the series that feels like it has an extra kind of edge to it. And that feels to me, at least a little bit beyond chippiness. I mean, how does it how? How does the atmosphere of the playoffs this year feel to you? And does it feel like it's maybe reflecting something a little more edgy than what we should be comfortable with? No, I don't, I don't see any any difference um, from that perspective uh, this year than any other year. Um, the only thing that I've noticed that's different, and this I mean, it's not as deep as what 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 topic you want to get into, but I, I just I've never seen a season where Every I feel like every team that's playing has a legit chance to win. Yeah. Um, usually by now, two or three teams have established themselves as the best team, and there's not really going to be a chance for anybody else to to break through. But this year, I feel like everybody has a shot, and when that's the case, when all things are equal, the intensity level is going to be that much higher because you really feel like this is our year, and we have to do whatever it takes to get there. And I think that that's probably what I've seen, but I mean, I've seen years where there've been uh, m many more injuries, there've been many more suspensions, been many more, uh, you know, fights and flagrants and, and it's been much more intense than what we've seen so far. So it doesn't feel that different from that perspective. It's just, it's just an unusual year that we've gone this far to some, you know, teams, some teams are already advanced to the conference finals. And even then I can't look at any of them and be like, oh yeah, they're the definite favorite because I don't think there is a favorite this year. And uh, that, I think that makes for an exciting product. No, you're right. And uh, and the team I think we've been sleeping on is the team with, I think, the best player in these playoffs so far, and that's the Miami Heat and Jimmy Butler, who I mm -hmm. think that they have not been central to any of the narratives that people are talking about when they might have the best shot at actually winning this whole thing. They, they de And they definitely have, of all the coaches remaining, they got the best one of those too. That's right. Well, well put. So, all right, Michael, I I love it when you come on the show. I had some people clamoring to me, being like, "When are you gonna have Michael on to speak about what's going?" <laughs> on? I really did. I got I got the emails, being like, "All right, you know, hoops. Where's Michael Lee?" And but I, people are always interested in your musical takes, Michael. So the double question is, what are you listening to these days? And have you heard Kendrick's latest? And do you have any thoughts? I, I gave Kendrick's uh, uh, I gave it a listen yesterday, and uh, and I, I like I like what I'm hearing. Um, I, I don't know if I've ever experienced uh, a, a album disguised as a therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that he really um, exposed himself in a way that a lot of artists aren't willing to do. Um, I think it was worth the wait. 
Uh, I'm not really ready to judge it in comparison to his other works. I think I want to just give it a listen and sort of judge it for what it is. Um, and so far, like I said, I like what I'm hearing. I, I don't, I don't, I definitely didn't hear any kind of radio songs or any songs that right. might just stay with me, you know, and, and be catchy, you know, in that sense. Um, but there, there definitely were some highlights. Um, and uh, I think I just, I probably need to listen to it a few more times before I can fairly assess it. It's so quick. Um, and I, I don't want to be over the top with, you know, criticism or praise. Um, I just say I, I like what I've heard. Um, I like the concepts. I think that there might not be a, a rapper out there um, who, who has better concepts and who executes them in a way. I mean, he's a, a true artist, a true um, uh, songwriter, you know, and he, he has a way of hooking you in and just, giving you something that you might not be expecting, but, um, and he just, and he, he, his, you, you know, his story, he's been building up this whole story with through musically for, for a long time. And so you feel like the, you feel a connection to him. Like you probably don't feel like a little, a little artist, like he's not somebody just bragging or lying about something. He's just telling you the real and just what he's experienced and you can see his growth and just how he sees the world. And, um, I admire that about him, so, uh, but I, I can't make a full judgment. I share that a thousand percent. You're basically quoting me. I just like got to listen to this more before I, I say anything public about it because, you know, it's Kendrick Lamar, you know, so you have to give it that space to yeah. really listen. Yeah, I mean, he, he's one of the, the best artists that we have, and uh, I'm glad that he finally blessed us with an album. And I'm glad that he was willing to open up in a way that uh, um, a lot of artists are unwilling to do. Absolutely. Well, Michael Lee, man, I, I know you're a busy guy. I know you've got top secret projects brewing. So I really appreciate <laughs> taking the time talking to us, man. Hey, anytime, man. You know, I, I, I'm glad that you asked me to finally hop on. And uh, uh, I wish I wish we had talked during the winter season so we could have just trash them for about 20 minutes but yeah uh, I, i'm okay with trashing the sixers too so <laughs> no, it sounds good to me with a little bit of trash thrown on the houston rockets for good measure which was more than deserved uh thank you so much michael <laughs> hey anytime dave i appreciate it man cool we'll be back right after this word from a quick uh, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast the nation magazine We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now, I've got some choice words. Okay, look, my colleague Will Leach has a thoughtful article in New York Magazine called Why Athletes Are Ignoring Roe versus Wade which looks at the absence of athlete activism or commentary following the leak that showed the Supreme Court's theocratic flanks efforts to overturn the landmark abortion rights decision. 
Leach notes the relative silence from the sports world and wonders if the political intervention by athletes that we saw explode in 2020 after the police murder of George Floyd has slowed. He ponders a number of reasons for this, from the centrality of black athletes who organically gravitated toward anti-racist, anti-police brutality work, to the fact that many athletes are conservative and anti-choice, to being warded off an issue deemed too controversial to touch. He also correctly critiques one male political athlete for basically saying the WNBA should handle it, as if it's not a responsibility for all of us to stand up to this Supreme Court. Leach is asking a critical question, and all of his theories have dollops of truth, but they contain an oversight and analysis that a lot of us fall prey to. No one, as the saying goes, is coming to save us but us. Our starting point, therefore, should not be, why isn't there more athlete activism around abortion rights? It should be, why isn't there more activism from all of us around abortion rights? And why would we ask of athletes what we don't ask of ourselves? After all, 70% of the country wants Roe to be law of the land, and yet the response when the Supreme Court said it would take this up months ago was little to no uptick in grassroots action. Since the leak, we have seen people all across the country attempt to raise hell and be heard. We've seen people gather outside the Supreme Court and protest outside the homes of these desiccated vultures in robes. Yet when we are looking for the kind of groups with infrastructure and money, like those that organized the 2004 March for Women's Lives or the 2020 Women's March to hold mass demonstrations, they have done little over the last year but take marching orders from the Democratic Party to silently lobby or get out the vote. Representative Sean Maloney articulated the Democratic approach when he tweeted after the leak, Democrats, we're angry and hurt, I know, but it's not about filibuster, the size of the court, or what the Senate hasn't passed. It's about Republicans, not us. We can save our freedoms, but it's November, stupid. Wow. What a luxury to wait until November. How many will suffer on the altar of such an uninspiring message? In the face of this message from the party that is supposed to be defending abortion rights, I understand why people are looking to athletes to lead, but why would we ask of them what we don't ask of ourselves? Thinking the athletes shall lead us is a failure to understand the history of athlete activism. It is always the movement who speaks out first, followed by the athletes. The best example of this, of course, is Muhammad Ali, who didn't come down from Planet Awesome to educate us about racism and the war in Vietnam. The heavyweight champion, first known as Cassius Clay, wanted to be the person who brought the showmanship of professional wrestling into boxing, with no aspirations to be like Malcolm X. His hero was pro wrestler gorgeous George Wagner. But then the 1960s and all its tumult intervened and shaped his own life, and the world was never the same. Or Colin Kaepernick, who took a knee four years after the start of the Black Lives Matter movement. Or look at 2020. That summer contained the largest demonstrations in the history of the United States. Athletes helped amplify the message, but they didn't launch it. That was done by thousands of people whose names we do not know, but who made an impact in small ways that together shaped our history. Now, the, as I'm giving this uh, little monologue here, uh, there are marches that are getting ready to start all over the country, sponsored by groups like Move On, Planned Parenthood, the Women's March, Ultraviolet, and Reproductive Justice Leaders. And they're all called Bands Off Our Bodies National Day of Action. 
Let's see how large these marches are, how many athletes come out, and whether that shapes a new response from the athletic community. But without this kind of broader activism, waiting for the sports world to save us is going to be one hell of a wait. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now... Back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. Um, The only thing I really want to talk about because it's on my mind in such a big way is what's happening right now with Brittany Griner. Brittany Griner just had her stay in detention extended by another month before they actually even look at the charges. Uh, What Russia seems to be doing is dangling Brittany Griner for the purposes of getting some horrific arms dealer released from the United States who's living 25 years to life here. Uh, This arms dealer, uh, I've read about him. His name is Victor Bout. Um, He flooded the Middle East and flooded uh, sub-Saharan Africa with weapons for the purposes of war. Um, He's about as disgusting a human being as you can imagine, and that's who Russia wants for Brittany Griner. The scary part is that, you know, if the U.S. agrees to such a trade, uh, it would incentivize more kidnappings, uh, which is, I believe, Brittany Griner has been kidnapped. Like, she is a hostage. So the U.S. has this decision to make about whether or not they're going to surrender this oligarchian uh, arms dealer. Uh, for Brittany Griner. Um, and you know these are insanely difficult decisions, but I think we have to weigh on the side of whatever it takes to bring Brittany Griner home. Uh, and I certainly hope we keep up the pressure so that can be the case and try to make it as untenable as possible uh, for Russia to uh, create this kind of uh, trade imbalance and try to work as hard as possible to make sure that the U.S. State Department keeps pushing to bring Brittany home. But that's where we are right now. I mean, and one of the things it shows is what we've been saying on this show for months is that the idea of not understanding Brittany Griner as a political hostage is an act of political ignorance and it's an act of uh, State Department negligence. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to my guest, Michael Lee. Thank you so much to the producer of this podcast, David Tigabu. For everybody out there listening, yo, it's, it's a little rough out there. So be kind to yourself, be kind to others, and be patient with the people around you. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. <laughs>